Welcome to Eye on the Triangle with Sesha Hindi, a weekly glimpse into our community, bringing you news from the brickyard to your backyard. Tonight on the April 26th edition of Eye on the Triangle, there's trouble off field for NCSU's football program, not to mention actual tornadoes and hurricanes, plus a figurative storm brewing in the Senate. I'm Evan Garris. I'm John Boyer. And here's our top local story. As if the state of NC State's football team wasn't dire enough, four of its players have been arrested on drug charges. Jake Vermiglio, Marcus Kuhn, George Bryan, and J.R. Sweezy were all arrested with possession of marijuana and drug paraphernalia after their apartment on Western Boulevard was searched. WRAL reports that Sweezy has had more than one run-in with law enforcement. On March 18th, he was charged with armed robbery and assault in his hometown. NC State researchers have predicted an active Atlantic hurricane season for 2010, according to a press release on the university's website. Dr. Leon Shea and graduate student Danny Modlin estimate 15 to 18 named storms forming in the Atlantic Basin, significantly higher than the 50-year average of 9 to 11. 8 to 11 of these named storms may grow strong enough to become hurricanes, and there's an 80% chance that one will make landfall along the coast of the southeastern United States. The Atlantic hurricane season runs from June 1st to November 30th. The Senate is gearing up for a procedural vote on finance reform, according to the New York Times. The vote is scheduled to occur today and, if passed, will bring the debate on on the contents of any financial reform legislation to the Senate floor. Democrats and Republicans are rushing to reach a bipartisan agreement on the contents of the proposed bill, although Republicans have signaled they will not vote against or against starting or they will vote rather against starting the debate if such a compromise cannot be reached. Republicans have struggled to pull together a plan that favors non-conventional methods of financial regulation while combating accusations that they are siding with financial organizations. Al Jazeera reports that Sudan's incumbent president, Ahmad Hassan al-Bashir, has been elected to another term in office after the country's first presidential poll in 24 years. Al-Bashir carried the election with 68% of the vote amidst widespread accusations of fraud. International watchdogs from the European Union and the United States have also expressed concern over the election's legitimacy. Opposition party officials expressed their discontent and are planning protests. Al-Bashir is the subject of an arrest warrant and issued by the International Criminal Court in The Hague for alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity committed against civilians in Darfur. Also on our news desk is a story fresh out of Iraq where the New York Times is following a developing political crisis. A special electoral court has disqualified a winning candidate from last month's election, citing his former ties to, Has- for- to Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath Party. The disqualified candidate won a seat in the 325-member Iraqi parliament by aligning himself with the newly elected Prime Minister Ayad Alawi and his secular Iraqiya coalition. The decision was first the first of its kind to be handed down post-election and has intensified political tensions and threat of violence, according to government officials. This recent turn of events may jeopardize President Obama's plan to withdraw the majority of American troops from Iraq by September. On April 16th, panic quickly set in at 85 Wall Street after investment bank Goldman Sachs was slapped with a civil fraud lawsuit by the Securities and Exchange Commission. The SEC has accused Goldman Sachs and the managing director of its London office of defrauding its customers. Allegedly, Goldman executives created a complex mortgage package codenamed Abacus and with the assistance of a third-party hedge fund bet against the investors to whom it sold this package. Goldman was paid $15 million for its work in this deal, and the hedge fund, Paulson & Company, made a profit of $1 billion. 
Bloomberg.com reports that Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein will tell a Senate committee tomorrow that it did not wager against the housing market and its customers. It should be noted that Paulson and Company is not named in the suit. On this day in 1607, English colonists of the Jamestown settlement make landfall at Cape Henry, Virginia. In 1865, Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston, the namesake of Johnston County, surrenders his army to General William Tecumseh Sherman at the Bennett Place near Durham, North Carolina. In 1986, a nuclear reactor accident occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear plant in the former Soviet Union, which was the worst nuclear accident in history. In 1994, physicists announced that the first evidence of the top quark has been discovered. And uh, on this day in 2005, Syria withdrew the last of its 14,000 troops from Lebanon, ending the 29-year military domination of that country. Birthdays on this day in 1564, William Shakespeare, the immortal bard. In 1917, architect I.M. Pei. And in 1933, the one, the only, Carol Burnett. Uh, in the weather tonight, right now we have a temperature of 71 degrees and some partly cloudy skies. You'll find some rain showers as you head into southeast Wake County. All that scattered rain activity will continue throughout the evening, but gradually wind down. So we're just looking for a partly cloudy night with lows in the lower 50s. Tomorrow, once again, some showers and thunderstorms during the afternoon, but much cooler than today with a high maybe around 69 or 70 degrees. And then we clear out that rain system for Wednesday. So Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, sunshine with our temperatures warming up from 70 on Wednesday, 76 Thursday, 81 on Friday. And at this point, it's looking like the weekend, Saturday into Sunday, could see our temperatures back into the mid to upper 80s. And one note about yesterday's tornado. We forgot to put that in the news section. It was in eastern Wake County, Wake County's first tornado since September 14th, 2007. The National Weather Service damage team went out this morning to assessed the tornado and rated it an EF0, which is a minimal rating for a tornado. But the good news is that there was only minimal damage, no deaths, and no injuries associated with the storm, which tracked for 3.5 miles from Zebulon out east into southern parts of Franklin County. The time is 7.10. You're now up to date on Eye on the Triangle. From the sidelines on Eye on the Triangle. Your weekly update on athletic events. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1 FM. Tyler, why don't you give us a little bit of information about this week in sports? Um, Do we have any news from basketball? Yes, some disappointing news from the basketball team. A lot of people have been waiting for an addition, in addition to C.J. Leslie, a prize recruit, still considering the pack. But this weekend, a report came out saying that Point guard Julius Mays has played his last game for NC State. He's going to be transferring. This is still a very vague report. Uh, Mays himself was not quoted. The report actually quoted his grandfather just saying he would be leaving. No specific reason was given for why. Um, nothing nothing on where he's headed, but um, it does look fairly certain that he, is, that he is done, and that will certainly be a loss of a contributing member, not a superstar, not the leader of the team, but a, a guy who played a pretty big role and a guy who uh, fans will certainly miss. He was a hardworking player and pretty well liked in general by uh, Wolfpack fans. Okay, and moving on to baseball, what did baseball do against Boston College? Baseball had a rough weekend. They had climbed to 500 in the ACC. They were playing a team about level with them in the ACC standings, if not below, and they were actually swept. Um, a sloppy series, a lot of runs, a lot of errors for both teams. Lost 9-5 in the series opener Friday. Lost 10-8 in the second game Saturday. 
uh, a late loss there. Saw Boston College come back to take that one late. Uh, another game Sunday in the finale was close until the last second, and it slipped away from the Wolfpack. They lost eleven to ten. They're gonna that move that drops them to nine and twelve in conference play and twenty three and seventeen overall. Up next, they got a chance to bounce back with a home game against Elon, and then a huge series against Georgia Tech, one of the top teams in the not only the ACC but in the country next weekend. Uh, the Pack will welcome them to Raleigh for a series that will start Friday, and they'll play them Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. All right, and how about baseball? Uh, sorry, softball. More lovely news for Wolfpack fans from the softball diamond. Uh, a 2 nothing win over Maryland Friday, but uh, no more runs for the softball team in either game Saturday or Sunday. Pretty good pitching and defense, but still lost 2 nothing Saturday and one nothing Sunday. So uh, not, not a lot to be thrilled about from uh, either team participating on the diamond. On that same note, there seems to be some uh, discouraging news about the football team. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Once again, lovely news abounds. Uh, four football players were charged Saturday night with some drug-related drug related charges uh, involving marijuana. An off-duty police officer smelled uh, the smell of weed, marijuana, whatever you want to call it, emanating from that room. Three of the four... The, the four players were Jake Vermiglio, an offensive tackle, J.R. Sweezy, a defensive tackle, George Bryan, a tight end, and Marcus Kuhn, another defensive tackle. Um, three of them were charged. Uh, Kuhn, Vermiglio, and Sweezy were charged with possession of marijuana, possession of paraphernalia, and something along the lines of maintaining a dwelling where a controlled substance was being used. Uh, George Bryan was charged only with uh, maintaining a dwelling where a substance was being used. So some details will come out. Soon, O'Brien kind of gave a Manila statement. didn't didn't comment much either way. Said he was going to deliberate and make a decision in the future. I know it'll be interesting what happens with Jr. Sweezy. He's got a misdemeanor larceny and a misdemeanor assault charge pending from an incident back in April. Uh, he hasn't been to court yet for the decision on that, but this will not help his case with either O'Brien or the judge in that. So obviously, you hate to see that happen to four players. Whether they'll be back with the Wolfpack for the whole season or part of it or none of it. We shall see, but certainly not encouraging news. Okay. And on a more positive note, um, some pack players are heading to the NFL. Is that right? Yeah, four guys are going to continue their football career, not in Raleigh, but they're going to they're going to have somewhat of a career, at least an opportunity to pursue one. Willie Young was dra- uh, defensive end, was drafted by the Lions in the seventh round. The center for the Wolfpack, not no more. He will be a Patriot now. He was drafted in the sixth round by the New England Patriots, and then running back Tony Baker, perhaps the most well-known of the four. He uh, he was not drafted, but he signed an undrafted free agent sort of deal with the Denver Broncos, who have made a lot of no-name running backs, have gone there and had success. So if there's anywhere where Baker might be able to stick and, and maybe have a good career, even as an undrafted free agent, it might be Denver. And then Jarrell McCuller was a veteran offensive tackle who, who started a, a number of games for State for a couple years there. He was drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles, so he'll be headed north. And uh, that that was it. Um, compared to past years, not quite the uh, the waves made on draft day. It's been a while since State had a first-rounder. But um, two guys got picked, two guys signed contracts. Um, I don't believe free agent, um, undrafted free agent contracts. I don't believe any other players for state have necessarily missed the boat yet. They might still have time to sign something between now and training camp. So we will see if anyone else is gonna gonna get a chance to represent the pack in the NFL and join the likes of uh, Philip Rivers with the Chargers or, or, or Mario Williams with the Houston Texans. All right, thanks, Tyler, and that wraps up this week in sports. Next up, Evans Editorial.
news. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, student media, or NCSU. I tend to avoid entering into arguments that unfold on social networking sites for a variety of reasons, a big one being that no one ever wins through a computer screen, especially when these dust-ups degenerate into ad hominem slime fests taken straight from an elementary school playground. However, when I posted an opinion piece penned last year by Paul Krugman concerning media bias and hate-mongering to my Facebook profile, it generated 11 replies, each a novel in its own right. Friends proceeded to decry the New York Times as a liberal shill not capable of providing good coverage to the unwashed masses. Now, there's no way I can keep my mouth shut when I accomplish such a useless feat and elicit such nonsense, so prepare yourself for my opinion. All right, to begin with. This op-ed, like so many of my favorite snarky, sneering works of liberal acumen, is an opinion piece. Opinion, as an obviously biased one way or another. There is no subterfuge afoot when the New York Times runs an opinion column on its opinion page. I simply happen to think that Krugman hit this one spot on, in my own humble opinion, thus the reason I shared it. First thing I noticed from this nascent string of comments was an attack on the liberal media, those pompous, cheeky, puffed-up bastards, those master puppeteers that misconstrue the facts and all too often attempt to incite public contempt for our all-too-loving government. Ah, media bias. Please, prove to me that it exists. Wake up and smell the newsprint, dear readers. There is no concrete manner in which to prove that the media favors one wing of the American political edifice over the other. It's an abstract concept. Testing such a conjecture is tantamount to certifying the existence of an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent space god. It's next to impossible. In fact, most attempts at determining the nature of any perceived media bias have yielded no concrete conclusions. I have to go with, little, with what little info we have. There is no evidence that supports the existence of a media bias. Now, you could have a little faith in the reality of this bias, but in the words of a popular pundit, that would simply be making a virtue out of not thinking. It's also important to note, important to note that this doesn't mean there isn't good and bad coverage, but please don't try to assign it a political label. Smart people read and watch news from a healthy variety of outlets and draw their own conclusions. I think most in this category will find no obvious slant. Please be able to separate actual coverage from opinions and entertaining commentary, cable news shows, blogs, opinion pages and newspapers, etc., hard and soft news sources respectively. It's an invaluable ability, ability, too. Now, segue to extremism, as illustrated by last year's shootings of an abortionist and, and Holocaust Museum security guard perpetrated by right-wing nutjobs, and this year's upsurge in extremist violence, arrests, and diatribe. Certain political commentators, entertainers, what have you believe that biased coverage from other entertainers motivated these people to grab their guns and go hunting? I say bullpucky. Sure, belting out childish phrases like tiller tiller baby killer live on national airwaves isn't smart, helpful, or nice, but people are ultimately personally responsible for who they choose to shoot or not shoot. It takes a lot more than the angry voice of a cable news personality to drive someone to kill. I think most readers of news understand this, so why it continues to come up is beyond me. The fact is Paul Krugman would agree. What he's claiming isn't helpful is the colorful, to say the least, manner in which these very popular programs are presented. 
While the words of one pundit don't directly influence the actions of any individual, they are certainly a mitigating factor if said individual has an unstable disposition. People responsible for these shootings and violent plans had a history of radical behavior. These programs are essentially hour-long rants given by talented motivational speakers aimed at a particular base. Again, separate hard and soft news. These programs are supposed to be biased. So if you're crazy at home stuffing down Twinkies while watching The Factor and it's particularly motivating in your assumedly predetermined genre of crazy, you'll be more likely to snap and act out your brand of crazy on others. Same way sermons are meant to influence congregations, the same way sharing the article on Facebook gave my politically inclined friends a sufficient reason to write books and reply to a politically charged post. Just be sure to eat the Twinkies before you terminate your unsuspecting victims. Then you have a viable defense. See Dan White. If you feel the need to opine, please don't hesitate to call us or, excuse me, email us at publicaffairs at wknc.org. Again, that's publicaffairs at wknc.org. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, student media, or NCSU. listening to WKNC's Eye on the Triangle. Um, I'm Sasha Hindi. I'm back after a two-week hiatus from the live show, but today's show is going to be a little bit different. Uh, make sure to stay tuned after the break to find out why. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Thanks for tuning in to the second to last episode of Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Pretty sad about that, but... We probably will have a summer show, even if it's uh, once a month. So make sure to email us your ideas, suggestions um, to publicaffairs at WKNC.org. I promised I would let you guys know why today's show is going to be a little bit different. Our VIP segment was going to focus on the Technician Dilemma, Technician NC State student newspaper. As most of you may have heard, Technician is having some issues with student empowerment empowerment and the editorial boards. I guess empowerment to take to take control of the paper, um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that. But we found that this topic was so long and complicated, and we want to make sure to get both sides of the story that it would take up a lot longer than today's eye on the triangle. So we're going to give you a sneak preview. Um, in the studio today, we have Kate Shefty and Russell Witham, who are two of technicians' executive editors. Um, they're going to read a short editorial and talk a little bit about a petition that's going on and then make sure to tune in Thursday night at 7 p.m. to hear the full segment with interviews on both sides of the debate. I am Russell and Kate is joining me and Hello. this is just a little sampling of what we have for later in this week on Thursday's Eye on the Triangle. And um, the title of this editorial is uh, An Act of Sedition which I feel like really encapsulates what we've experienced this past semester, this past year, and really what staffs moving back several years have experienced. So when the system is broken, when its processes are wrecked, and the network intended to support it has lost the power to lend aid, you fix the system. The system is broken. And to ensure the survival of campus's daily student newspaper, it must be radically mended. Technician hasn't faltered and fallen due to a lack of effort or passion from the students who run it, but because the umbrella, which was supposed to provide it with a gentle hand, has become the fabled albatross, dragging it down, tearing students away, and weakening the staff. 
The current leadership of 25 or so dedicated senior-level staffers has attempted to persevere through the debilitating hindrances for a love of providing the campus community with an entertaining and informative news service 155 times a year, but has dwindled and suffered during the last five years. The outside pressures have grown, and the best efforts of the staff have been reduced to the point where it must stand up against a system which has wronged one of students' oldest defenders and watchdogs. The symptoms of the injury have shown in many forms during the past semester, beginning with the removal of technician's editor-in-chief and ending with the hiring of a new editor who is poorly sued for the demands of one of campus's most difficult leadership positions. The problem isn't the new editor, though. Much of it is the process which unanimously led to her hiring. Instead of being based on the merits of a well-vetted application reviewed before student me as board of directors, the applicant was recommended by an ill-equipped advisory board which didn't fully understand the staff's concerns and never heard them since the executive session where deliberations took place, contained no editors from student media's publications. None. Additionally, the advisory board received the five can applications the day of the selection and interview process. It was essentially tasked with selecting a leader for campus's 90-year-old newspaper from a single interview. It would be akin to selecting the president of the United States after only a week of campaigning. It's ludicrous. And perhaps worse, unethical. The process should have been subject to open record laws, producing a set of easy-to-view minutes and providing clarity on the selection, not smokescreens. But can the process really be to blame? Who set the advisory board in the first place? Where did it come from? The board, which is in its first year, was not established by the Student Media Board of Directors. It came together as a result of special invitations from this advising unit that was supposed to help students with their journalism, not set up the system by which they are hired. It is a dramatic breach of power, and it has led to low staff morale from what has been perceived as a corrupt process. The advisory board, which came out of a desire to alleviate the student media board's long deliberations into the night, returned a result that was stranger than fiction and left a room full of technician staffers, including the editor-in-chief-elect, in a state of complete shock. The seeds of revolution weren't planted in a day, though. They have been fertilizing for years, and staff resignations concerning inequitable workplace policies, which border on harassment. Quite honestly, the staff won't take it anymore. This is an edict declaring the staff's right to actual freedom, in word and in action, to the end of university infringement and the electing of an editor from elected student officials and professionals alone. To provide students with a, a product the staff can continue to stand behind, there can be no compromise or tyranny. The staff has been trampled for five years, and it is using this page to let students know why the quality has declined and the staff has shrunk while the bottom line has been outstanding. Product quality, informative journalism, isn't about bottom lines or staff diversity. It's about a staff of tired, overworked student journalists working to ensure their fellow students, faculty, alumni, staff, and the campus community receive the most pertinent editorials and facts every day. Students won't know many of these facts or na- faces or names, but they are what put this newspaper in your hand today. If you believe in college journalism, it's right to unassailable independence and freedom and the end of the powers which have de- caused its decline at NC State. Join us. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. Again, you're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. You just heard technicians editorial to run either Wednesday or Thursday. Okay. And 
Full disclosure, I was editor of Technician last year, so obviously I have a strong opinion on the subject, but you'll have to tune in to Thursday's Eye on the Triangle for the full story. Uh, Russell and Kate, there's something going on about a petition. Is that right? Yeah, in uh, unison with this editorial, which will be running later this week, um, look starting this evening for a petition on technicianonline.com, the newspaper's homepage, um, if you agree with what we said. I mean, if you thought that... What we had said, what we said had some merit. Then come read the full version, um, and weigh in on it. If you don't we, agree with us, you don't have to, but we'd like you to read it. We know a lot of people have noticed a steep decline in the paper's quality this year. There's a Facebook group to that effect, and uh, we've we've heard it, and we know, and we're more aware of it than everyone else. And we would love to change it, but we definitely need your help. And if you're still confused about exactly what's going on, make sure to check out the stories on technicianonline.com. Go to savetechnician.com and check out the Eye on the Triangle segment on Thursday at 7 p.m. Next up, Wolfpacker of the Week. Wolfpacker of the Week on Eye on the Triangle. A spotlight on those who go above and beyond. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Next up, we have... The Wolfpacker of the Week with Evan Garris and Hassan Abdullah. Evan is going to talk to us a little bit about this program that Hassan has started called We Cycles and give us a little bit of insight on that. So I'm here with Hassan Abdullah from We Cycles. Um, Hassan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your affiliation with NC State? Well, I actually don't have much affiliation with NC State. Um, if you're familiar with Transloc, the people that make your uh, I guess interactive online bus maps. I did work there for a little bit, oh, okay. uh, ensuring NC State's you know was using public transport in the right way. But uh, a little bit about myself: I graduated from UNC 2009, and uh, actually started a nonprofit organization called WeCycles, which uh, provides uh, actually an advanced bike sharing option to campus communities. Well, wonderful! Um, now that you're heading out this program, um, it, and it's aimed at finding innovative new ways of greening transportation using bikes on and around Triangle campuses. Tell us a little more about it and why you're involved. Well, actually, um, we started at UNC, uh, I think, 2008. Uh, And the reason we kind of started, we found there was a problem uh, in the Chapel Hill community with transportation, Uh, not just an environmental problem, but a parking problem. And that's pretty much goes with every single campus there is. Uh, So what we have done is been working with – the Chapel Hill town, you know, the mayor, uh, the city council, Chancellor Thorpe at UNC implementing this program. And, you know, more specifically, this program is an advanced bike sharing uh, program that, I mean, if you think about Redbox, imagine having Redboxes placed throughout your campus where you would swipe a credit card or even an NC State card uh, and a bike would just unlock uh, from, you know, a locking, electromagnetic locking mechanism. And that bike can be rode around all campus and return to one of our network stations nearby. Right. Uh, you know, it sounds like a, a wonderful way to uh, to keep my or to keep me from getting parking tickets, like I so frequently do. But um, as of as of last year, NCSU has a bike rental program on campus. Tell us how your program is different and how it will work with the one that's currently operating. Well, I'm not completely familiar with NC State's. Uh, what I do know is that it is limited. Uh, and it is not that convenient. I think you have to go somewhere to rent a bike for maybe three hours a week. Uh, and I'm not too sure on the details. But what our program does is it makes, you know, having a bike more convenient. Uh, it's like p- 
picking up a movie like Redbox. Anytime you want it, the bike is there 24-7, right outside the DHL library, uh, right outside the student center. Uh, and just swipe her card, ride the bike for an hour, 30 minutes, and put it in a station nearby or the same station you got it from. Uh, so what we do is we make riding bikes convenient. Uh, as a student, you don't have that much time to really worry about bikes. So we take one less thing off your plate. Well, yeah, maybe you mentioned, but tell us what, what are the rates like? How much does this cost? Well, the costing structure uh, is dependent on each campus. Uh, and it is, since we are a nonprofit, is relatively cheap. Uh, I think what we do have right now is about $2 for every hour. Uh, and that is a, that could be reduced to even lower depending on how much, uh, I guess, how, how much the campus is willing to work with us. Okay, so, so the university could potentially subsidize part of the program. Absolutely. I think okay. at UNC we're at $1 an hour. Uh, we're going to put it lower. Uh, we have officially started there. Uh, the way it works right now is the student government there picked up the program, and they're going to start working on it this fall. Oh, well, great. So how do you plan to, to initially implement this program and integrate it into these other college campuses and campus communities across the Triangle? Well, we've only focused on North UNC right now. Uh, and what we need to do is, you know, each campus is very different. Uh, we look at mm-hmm. their uh, traffic flow, where students go every day. And we use that, I guess we create a traffic map. And we use that traffic map to determine where to place these kiosks to ensure that these bikes are rented and they go on a point A to point B uh, formula. Okay. Uh, well, why do you feel, or why is this this cause so important to you? Well, we're living in a, I guess, in the United States and throughout the entire world. I mean, and everywhere actually, uh, we have an environmental problem, and twenty five percent of our emissions come from transportation, and it doesn't need to. Uh, things can be more simple, a lot more simplified. Uh, and bicycles the most eco friendly way to travel. Uh, it is the healthiest way to travel, and. The only reason we can't, you know, ride our bike everywhere we go is because we don't want to carry our bike with us. We can't take our bike on the bus. Uh, we can't take our bike on the plane. Can't take our bike on the train. But if there's kiosk right outside these major public sectors or public transport sectors, that bike is waiting there for you. Uh, so it makes it a lot more convenient. Uh, and at the same time, we're trying to reduce emissions. Some people do try to take their bikes on the bus, by the way. And let me tell you, it's a very, very bad decision. Which I think is only two bikes per bus, right? <laughs> Something like that. I have no idea, but it makes things very uncomfortable especially for me. Um, so tell us who, who you've been working with uh, from NC State and what your ideal relationship, your ideal working relationship would be. We haven't really worked with NC State at this point, um, and that's not something uh, we are planning to, but not something we're pursuing right now in the near future. Uh, it takes a lot of resources to focus on one college campus, uh, and UNC is our primary campus right now. Uh, and since NC State does have a bike sharing program, uh, we can't completely dismiss its effectiveness, to be honest with you. It could be completely effective. It could meet the need. And I can't sit here and say we're trying to uh, take over something that's already been done. So, you know, we're going to talk to the transportation department at NC State in due time, in the next few months, maybe in the fall, and find out how effective the program is that they have already established. Okay. So uh, going back to cost, uh, NC State, I'm sure UNC too, has recently faced great budget shortfalls. Um, what's the total cost or what has been the total cost of this program at UNC? We can't really comment on cost at UNC since we haven't fully implemented. Uh, okay. And to be honest with you, we're still in the process of uh, hammering out the details. Uh, and UNC is going to be a little bit uh, unique since student government's the one is to kind of push it forward. Um, but, you know, we, we are familiar with the budget crisis and that affects everybody. Um, it, it, is, it is not something that's going to be completely free. Uh, but what we're doing, we're trying not to go to the campus for money. We're trying to go to 
you know, some sponsorships, some athletic companies uh, that can, you know, provide a partnership to help push us forward. Um, so in, in anything, there's creative, uh, the creative ways to get things done. Okay. Was there profit involved? And if so, who, who um, makes it? Not much, to be honest with you. There's not much profit involved, um, if any. I think uh, you lose money your first three three years, but that's with any for-profit business. But we are non-profit. Uh, and as soon as that money that we make, uh, we pay our administrative costs, the maintenance costs, and that money goes right back to the college campus and pursuing other environmental projects. We actually have a plan to create some kind of environmental grant with our leftover money so the campus can pursue other environmental initiatives. Oh, well, great. Again, I've been here with Hassan Abdullah, from a UNC graduate from WeCycles. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. And that's the website is WeCycles.com. You're listening to Eye on the Triangles, Wolf Packer of the Week. Triangle. Your local music news. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Tommy Anderson. And for this week's Hear This, Nicole, Kate, and I had the pleasure of covering the 2010 Shakori Hills Festival of Music and Dance, tucked away in the woods of Pittsburgh, North Carolina. Amidst the controlled creative chaos that is Shakori, we were lucky enough to have the opportunity to speak with quite an assortment of folks. Festival goers and musicians alike were all too happy to share their take on this year's festival. The first musical group I was able to speak with were the Grady Girls, a traditional Irish folk band from Ithaca, New York. My name is Marie DeMott Grady. I'm from Ithaca, New York, and I play the flute. I'm Una Grady DeFlon. I'm from Ithaca as well, and I play the fiddle. And I'm Leah Grady Savitz, and I'm from Ithaca as well, and I play the bowron, which is the drum. We came down in October uh, for the first time this past October to play, and we've been going to the Grassroots Festival up in our area since we were very small children. And, uh, so we, we've been playing there for several years also, and so... So how would you um, compare the two festivals? Uh, this one is, um, well, it's a bit smaller than the Trumansburg one, probably because it's younger. Um, and it's, it, the landscape is different. It's kind of hillier and woodsier, and I, I love it down here. It's really nice down here. What I was struck by coming down here to North Carolina is uh, more sort of community-oriented. Everybody's, it's smaller and more relaxed. And yeah. All right, well, we're definitely glad you all enjoyed North Carolina. Thanks for talking with us. Kate Rafferty was then able to catch up with some of the festival's younger constituency. WKNC 80.1, this is Kate Rafferty, a.k.a. DJ Riff Raff, and I'm here with three of my new friends from Shakori Hills. Would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Ben. I'm Cy. And I'm Elijah. All right, and how would you guys say that you've liked Shakori so far? It's awesome. I've been going here for a long time. It's really awesome. And are you guys camping out, or are you just here for the day? Uh, we're just here for the day. Possible that we'll camp out, but probably just here for the day. And what would you say is your favorite part about Shakori so far? Um, I don't know. Probably playing billiards. Playing billiards. Very fun. Well, do you guys think that you would bring your kids out here when you're older? If you still live in North Carolina, you can bring your kids out to Shakori? Definitely. Definitely. All right, well, you heard it here. These kids love in Shikori, and we are too.
And then only a little bit later on Saturday, Nicole and I were able to catch it with Kim of Durham Folk Group Midtown Dickens right after their performance. All right, you were listening to Hear This on Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM. My name is Tommy Boy. I'm here with DJ Kliggs and Kim from Midtown Dickens. They just got done performing. How was it? It was really great. I like this stage the best, I think. So what's your experience uh, thus far been at Shakori Hills? We got here, most of us got here on Thursday, and I, I kind of walked in on some crazy stuff on Friday. They had gotten, like, kicked out of um, their campsite, which makes sense because they're at the gray water tent. Right. So, like, some dude just kicked them out, and that was, like, the first night. And the second night, family camping ground was really cool. Yeah. So far, lots of frisbees, lots of hoops. Are y'all looking forward to anything tonight, provided the rain holds off? Yeah, I think we're going to do, like, some dances to make sure the rain holds off. Right. And then we're going to... Um, Anti-rain dance. Yeah, maybe, like, hoop a little bit to keep the rain out. Um, and then, like, Hammer is playing, and that's really cool, and Desarc's playing. Yeah. And then I actually have a question. Um, I've seen you with just Catherine, and I've also seen you with a full band. What's your favorite way to perform? Ooh, um, yeah, that's question. intense. <laughs> what if I was just, like, solo? This is a deep question. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I would hate that. Um, I think they both have their, their ups. I think I just went on tour with Catherine. We just went on tour together for like a month and a half. And that was really challenging, but really productive. Because people don't give like duos, I think, the respect right. that they deserve. And they like, it's, they like the full band aspect. And then like at places like this, like with Will and Jonathan, mm-hmm. they're such great musicians. And like, they're so fun that, I mean, we can make so much fun of Will. Because he's awesome. <laughs> he is single, Raleigh. And he's amazing. Will, I love you. <laughs> so I like them both, but they both have their up. The, today was really fun with the, the full band. It was the first time we played together, like since the cradle, but really in a long time. Well, thank you so much. Right after Midtown, Bowerbirds took the stage, and we were fortunate enough to catch up with them afterwards as well. You're listening to Hear This on Eye on the Triangle on WKNC-FM. My name's Tommy Boy. I am here with Beth and Phil of Bowerbirds. So two-fifths of Bowerbirds, 40% of the Bowerbirds, I guess. They just got done performing here at Shikori Hills Saturday afternoon. My side, it was awesome. How did y'all feel playing? It was fun. It was really fun. It was really, really fun. The crowd was great and chill and lovely. It's a very soothing environment to play in. How, how, how does this environment differ from, like, a typical show that you'd play at, a, at like, a bar or venue in the area? Almost in every single way, but I love it. I don't know. It's just, like, people don't expect, uh, people just expect, I don't know, just good vibes or something like that. And, yeah, it, you know. it feels like, also, this sort of thing, we don't feel like anyone really knows our music here, so it's more just, like, let's see if they like our music. And it's also like people are here to hang out, so it's not as um, yeah. it's not as like they're all staring at you and needing a specific thing. They're just like chilling. Cool. So, um, have y'all been coming to Shikori in the past? Is this your, is this y'all's first time? Or we came here three years ago and just had heard about it from living around here. Like we live half the time in Raleigh, half the time out here, um, and just just start, just came one year and just really loved it and saw a bunch of good music and and then just tried to play almost every year since then but just couldn't work it out with our touring schedule and everything and this is just the year that worked out so great well i'm glad it did i'm sure y'all are glad it did you have a huge new following that i'm sure glad it did are y'all uh, looking forward to anything in particular the rest of the night uh yes desarc 
Um, Bella Fleck, uh, yeah, no. Bella Fleck and uh, Hammer No More of the Fingers, awesome. And then um, Koyate. Koyate. Basaku Koyate or something. I'm not exactly sure. I've never seen him, but I'm just curious. I think it's going to be awesome. Great, cool. Well, thanks for talking. I, I enjoyed it. Um, Y'all have a good weekend. Later Saturday evening, the rain that everyone tried so desperately to ward off eventually did come, but it certainly didn't hamper the performances of Hammer No More the Fingers and Influential, who played one after the other in the cabaret tent. This is Kate Rafferty here at Shikori Hills, and I'm here for the Eye in the Triangle. Just got done watching Hammer, No More the Fingers. Would y'all like to introduce yourselves? Hey, WKNC. Love you. Uh, this is Duncan from Hammer, No More the Fingers. Hey, Raleigh. This is Jeff from Hammer, No More the Fingers. How do you guys feel about Shikori? How do you think the atmosphere is? Maybe some bands that you've seen that you like so far? Uh, it's the best time that I've ever had. Yeah, I got here yesterday and have been partying nonstop, and it's so fun. Yeah, uh, it's it's such a great environment, and Big Fat Gap is awesome. Stephanie Zid was great. Hackensaw Boys are great. It's been really fun. And you guys said in your set that you've been here for the past couple of years. Is this the first time you guys have ever played? Yeah, it's, it's the first time we've ever played. We've like we've won the player forever, but this is the first time we've had the opportunity. And how would you say that playing at Shakori Hills compares to playing at other venues? Uh, wow. Um, they treat you so, so good. Uh, free food and just whatever you need, free coffee whenever you want, tea, and uh, a great place to camp and a bunch of really, really nice people and uh, a longer set than you get at any venue. So uh, it's pretty much the best best show we've had the chance to play. Well, it sounds like y'all are living like kings up here at Shikori. What would you say your favorite part other than the music at Shikori Hills would have been so far? The vegetarian lasagna was off the chains. Uh, the people. Got it. I mean, they're just, it's such a good vibe. Good vibes. All right. Well, this is Kate Rafferty out in the field of Shikori Hills. Influential coming up next. This is Nicole Kligerman here at Shikori Hills in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, North Carolina. For the Eye of the Triangle, and I'm here with Charlie Smarts of Influential. They just were on stage. How you feeling right now, Charlie? I feel like a champion. <laughs> like, nah, I feel really, really good. The crowd was really into it, and it's just, I was just like grinning ear from ear as I speak into the microphone, which looks like Bozo's nose. It is a red microphone. Influential just played for a lot of new people who hadn't heard of Influ before. So this is a great opportunity. Charlie's, Charlie's signing autographs as we speak. So great turnout. Great spirit. From Mooresville, North Carolina, baby. She represented. Represent Mooresville. How was it? How was it? Yeah. 
long. My bad, I'm sorry. It's okay. It was so straight up awesome, dude. The backbone to Influential, what are y'all's names? Kyle Phelps, I play guitar. Uh, Michael Bender, I play bass. So how is this environment different from a normal venue or a normal club environment? Um, it was really cool. Uh, uh, from coming from a festival standpoint, uh, hip hop's not really huge. There are a few hip hop festivals out there, but coming to this one where there's not a lot of hip hop on the bill, it was a great time, man. The crowd was amazing. Couldn't ask for a better crowd. Yeah, just how there's music going on all over the place. You know, at a club, it's just you on stage and the band there. But this is this is so much better. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much, guys. So all in all, rain included, it was a truly great time for everyone. People of all ages and from all walks were able to get together and enjoy some great music and some good vibes that you're not likely to find anywhere else until, of course, next fall when it all happens again. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Tommy Anderson. Buzz had been growing about the new building at the North Carolina Museum of Art since before the museum closed its doors to visitors for its interior exhibits on September 7, 2009. Eye on the Triangle sent two of its community canvas correspondents, Kieran Marrera and Jacob Downey, to cover the opening weekend and experienced firsthand if there was substance to the hype. From early media reviews attempting to inoculate to the shed-like appearance of the new West Building and being present to some heated discussions at downtown watering holes lambasting the new building's architecture, Kieran and I approached the art museum wearing our skeptic hats early on Saturday morning. As soon as we left the overflowing parking lot, Jacob and I were awestruck by the new structure which was teeming with life. That weekend, close to 15,000 guests and visitors came to the North Carolina Museum of Art's new addition to its 164-acre campus. I could only describe the West Building as something fantastical, taken directly from a science fiction novel. As we paused to take in the sight of its aluminum exterior, massive windows, and inviting reflective doors, Libby Carson, a volunteer, greeted us warmly to the grounds. We asked Libby what she was most looking forward to over the opening weekend. People, their reaction to this beautiful West Building, which we've been in, is absolutely breathtaking if you go in there. The way they've set up the design and the light, and they have done a wonderful job in the presentation. I think everybody will be proud of it. Since it does belong to the people of North Carolina, it's an interest of pride for us. One of the impressive things to me was how fresh art pieces I was familiar with had become due to the new building's natural lighting and inviting layout. In order to get a better understanding of the design layout, we spoke with Eric Gard, the head of exhibition design. In most of our galleries, all the casework was designed and built in-house. We have a staff of eight designers, artists, and craftsmen that actually man the exhibit design department. And probably 90% of 200 pieces of casework were built by our in-house production team. Um, and it's all weighted to the floor um, because we can't actually screw into the wood floor like we would have in the old building. So it's weighted um, with about 200 to 300 pounds of weight in each, in each base or pedestal. 50% of the exterior walls are all glass, and then there are 360 skylights that allow light to come in and penetrate the building in a diffused way um, from multiple angles. So, as you can see, it gives a very kind of um, 
beautiful, quiet atmosphere to the building, which we did not have before in the other building that was built like a prison. I mean, it's a bunker in there. There are no windows anywhere, and so the collection looks completely different here in this building, which is great. With the windows, for example, the windows are fritted glass. They have the lines um, printed in between sheets of glass, and there's a UV protection device on the inside. Um, the drapes, the shades, the skylights, everything helps allow light to come in, but in a very diffused manner so it doesn't ever strike a work of art um, because it's diffused throughout the room. And um, there's UV protection, ultraviolet light protection everywhere, including the um, lighting system, the track lighting system that you see also has UV lighting protection. So every work of art is protected in its own way. Luckily, Jacob and I were fortunate enough to speak to Thomas Pfeiffer, the head architect for the firm that commissioned the museum, as he was mingling with patrons on Saturday. Pfeiffer spoke to the museum's lighting design in relation to North Carolina's cultural heritage. You know, for a long, long time, museums have been designed with daylight. From John Soane, um, all the way through Lucan and, and Kimball, there's a heritage of daylighting galleries. And so we wanted to pick up on, on these paintings that are so beautiful, to see them in the moving and changing light. Because nature is not just the bamboo, it's not just plantings, it's not just the trees, but nature is light, and it's the movement of light, it's the changing light, the atmosphere of the sunrise and sunset. We wanted to capture that spirit here within the galleries. We wanted this to be a very open building, a very Nisian building, a building that where the galleries would flow one to the other without any barriers at all, so that the collections could really move together. They, they could become one collection one museum, one gallery. I'm just so happy to have people in the building after all these years. I love it with people here. It's an exciting weekend for the people of North Carolina to see these works in a new light. The renovations have been the lead story on the North Carolina Museum of Art for the past three years. But as Kieran and I discovered by talking to Dan Guntley, Director of Planning and Design for the museum, the renovations have been a work in progress for the past 13 years. There has been an effort and desire, I should say, uh, ever since the day that this building opened to uh, make a proper home for the collection. We have one of the great collections in the United States, and it's never really had a proper home. Well, I started the planning effort 13 years ago for the new building. Um, we began the exercise of thinking through how we might grow the museum in a very contemporary way meaning one that was not necessarily just an extension of this building, but one that was more expressive of today's architecture and a new way of thinking about the collections. And leading up to its opening, uh, we've gotten a lot of uh, amazing gifts. Um, probably most well known is the gift of the Rodin collection where we now have 31 uh, Rodins that have come to the museum and have a permanent home here and in uh, a gallery of their own and in a courtyard that's specifically designed. It's a very, very beautiful, elegant courtyard, very French-inspired. It was designed as a home to that collection as a gift. We've recently received uh, stellar um, gifts of uh, early modern art, including Picasso that's now on view, um, California uh, modernist works that have come on view, huge commissions, including our uh, Roxy Payne commission given by a private donor. It's a 45-foot-tall stainless steel tree-like sculpture. Uh, the Ursula von Reidingsvard sculpture, which is a 21-foot-tall 
red cedar installation outside the building, the Jeanne Plenza gift, uh, which are these glowing orbs of these figures that, are, that welcome people into the building. Um, the money was very fortunately all secured before the economy took a nosedive, and so we were very lucky that way. And we had great support on the public side um, to uh, allow us to complete the building. But you know, uh, the public investment, if you think about um, what I was just talking about with the private investment, with the growth in our collections, which is worth many times if you were to value it in such a way, um, already as contribution to uh, the collections what the public investment was worth, and you add that to um, increased uh, uh, visitation as this becomes a world destination, which it, I promise you it's going to become and is becoming. Today, uh, it will pay off for itself and many times over. I can remember a friend of mine who had two PhDs coming into this building and not being in the art world, feeling a little bit stupid because she didn't exactly know where to begin, how to encounter the works of art. Nobody feels that in this new building. Everybody feels pretty welcome on all levels, whether you're very connected to art history or not, very connected to visiting museums or not. It's, uh, it's very sophisticated, elegant, but it's also really relaxed. The staff was quick to reiterate the fact that the museum was the people's museum. Over the course of the day, we sought out those people to get their impressions of the new facility. Uh, what were your expectations for today? Uh, nothing like this. I mean, I expected it to be nice, but it's beyond what I expected. It's an experience. I think it's wonderful. I just talked to one of the designers of the, uh, of the uh, space, and we were discussing, you know, the, the skylights and, and how, it, how the light's infused and how it's changed from where it used to be to where it is now, where before it was dark and almost tomb-like. And they said that they feel that they see so much more in these paintings that was revealed to them that they never saw before because of the light in the space. Has there been any uh, type of art or anything that's struck a fancy with your children? Uh, well, they like all the stuff that they, it looks like they can climb on, but we've told them it's off limits. Uh, they're at the climbing stages, so that's not really a fair question for us. But, you know, they're, they're just, they come to it with sort of wide eyes and eyes wide open. And, um, you know, they, we definitely want to give them an appreciation for art, you know, early. Um, and um, we think that this is just a wonderful place to show them. Although the weekend festivities have come to a close, there's still a lot to see and do at the North Carolina Museum of Art in the East Building, the newly opened West Building, and the beautiful 164-acre campus. The museum is open Tuesdays through Sundays. For more information, you can check out their website at ncartmuseum.org. This has been Community Canvas with Kieran Morera and Jacob Downey on Eye on the Triangle. And that wraps up another episode of Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. I'm Seja Hindi. This is my second to last episode of the academic year, so send me some emails. Let me know what you think. Public Affairs at WKNC.org. And make sure to tune in Thursday to WKNC 88.1 or live stream online WKNC.org slash listen for a continued Eye on the Triangle segment at 7 p.m. The post blog and the post blog will be posted on WKNC.org slash blog, so make sure to check that out as well.